Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of POMAPS. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we begin by speaking with Aura Sekely of Clark University about her new Columbia University Press book, Syria Divided, Patterns of Violence in a Complex Civil War. Then we turn to a conversation with Wendy Perlman, who's just become the new co-editor of the APSA journal Perspectives on Politics, about the journal and about her own research on Syrian refugees and uh, her work with oral histories and where it fits into the broader field of political science. Uh, thanks for listening to the podcast. And now let's get on with the show. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we talk to Ora Sekely of Clark University and author of the new Columbia University Press book, Syria Divided, Patterns of Violence in a Complex Civil War, just published actually in my series, which I'm very happy about. Uh, Ora, thanks for joining us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this book? Uh, thanks for having me, Mark. I'm, I'm really excited to be here and to be uh, talking about the book with you. So with Syria Divided, you know, like like most books, I think I started out thinking that uh, the book was going to be about one thing. And then I started doing interviews and talking to people. And I started noticing this, uh, this sort of underlying theme in a lot of my conversations. Uh, and so the book ended up being about slightly something different than I thought it would, which is the great joy of doing field research, right? That if you go at it with an open mind, if you're lucky, the people you're talking to are going to explain to you, you know, what you really should be focusing on. So I started out wanting to understand two things about the war in Syria. I wanted to understand what everybody involved thought the war was about, because I had the sense from, you know, like reading media coverage and interviews with many of the parties involved that everybody seemed to be fighting a slightly different war, that as in most big complicated civil wars, first of all, Syria is actually, you know, the series of different interlocking conflicts that vary across the course of the war and also geographically at any given point in time during the war. But also, you know, if you ask the major participants in the war, which we can sort of think of as being the regime, the big complicated bucket of forces known as the rebels, uh, who are all sometimes like also fighting each other, uh, the Kurdish forces, and then, you know, we can sort of bracket ISIS as being its own separate actor. All of them understand the war in, in very different ways. So I wanted to understand what everybody thought the war was really about. And the other thing I really wanted to do was to try and map out the major patterns of violence in the war. I wanted to understand what the big currents were within the Syrian conflict. And in the course of my interviews, I realized that I also wanted to do this third thing, which was to try to connect those things. I wanted to understand why those patterns looked the way that they did. And I ended up with a slightly surprising set of answers. One of the answers I kept running into was definitely not what I expected to find. So uh, I think that there are a couple of major narratives of the war. You know, if you ask the early civilian activists who were involved in the uprising, you know, in 2011, 2012, they would tell you that the wars or that the, the uprising, not the war, but the, the revolution and the uprising was about a search for dignity and democracy. You hear a lot about democracy from some of the rebels, from the Kurdish forces at various points, although they, they sort of frame it differently. For other rebel forces, especially later in the war, you hear a lot of sectarian language. ISIS uses a lot of sectarian language. So they understand the war as being uh, a conflict. 
conflict between different uh, sectarian communities. The regime uses language of terrorism. So they talk about the war as being this counter-terrorist operation. They also accuse their adversaries of fighting a sectarian war. And then the rebels will say like, no, no, it's the regime that's actually fighting a sectarian war. So everybody's got, you know, kind of a different version of what's going on. And everybody also accuses their adversaries of being proxies for, you know, foreign forces in Syria. Um, sometimes you also hear people talk about the war as an ethno-nationalist conflict, although again, they're usually accusing somebody else of fighting an ethno-nationalist war. That's that's sort of like background noise, but it's not something other people really claim. So there's this conflict from the get-go of like what people say the war is about. And that's not unusual. That's pretty that's a pretty common characteristic, I think, of most civil wars. But uh, I do think it's important in trying to understand what's going on in Syria, to understand how people want the war to be understood. That's not necessarily the same thing as what they are actually doing. There's actually quite a lot of disconnect there. But understanding the narratives that these different actors are promoting in terms of how they want other people to view the war is important because, in a way, each of them is trying to frame the war and create or make, make the war into a conflict that they think they can win. So for the Assad regime, if the war is widely understood by Syrians and by outside forces as a fight between the forces of dictatorship and the forces of democracy, that's not great for the regime. Whereas if they can position it convincingly as a fight between uh, a counter-terrorist state and really violent terrorist organizations, mm -hmm. that's a much more con you know, con helpful narrative for the government. And vice versa for the you know for the rebels if this is a counterterrorist operation that doesn't that's you know much harder sell for them to their foreign sponsors than if they're fighting for the dignity of the Syrian people against a brutal regime. So you talk a lot in the book about these narratives and 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 their construction. Tell us a little bit about the different audiences that these narratives are for. Who are they trying to convince when they put forward these arguments about what the war is actually about? Yeah, I think that's a really important part of the puzzle, because while there are some audiences that are pretty common across the different participants in the war, not everybody cares equally about the same audiences. Mm -hmm. In a broad sense, we can think of everybody as having important domestic constituencies, like domestic audiences, and important audiences abroad. Now, some of the people who are audiences for any given narrative are people that are actively trying to convinced to support you. So for the regime, um, the Syrian population in general, but especially, uh, you know, the Alawites who are in sort of their core constituency, other religious minorities, they're a really important audience. Um, but, you know, so is the Syrian public in a general sense. They also have foreign audiences who they're trying to keep on side to convince to actively support them. But there are also people who they know are watching and listening, who they're not really trying to convince to support them, but who they would like to stay neutral, right? Who they would like to believe their version of the story about the war. And even if that doesn't result in direct support, maybe it's going to result in um, a lack of intervention. And so the, you know, the sort of the classic example of this is the United States, right? The regime would really like the United States to understand the war as primarily being about, you know, fighting groups like ISIS rather than, uh, fighting for democracy, because one of those narratives makes the US much more likely to leave the regime alone. So there's different ways in which audiences matter, and different participants have different audiences that they care about. So the rebels, um, the Syrian public, especially early in the war, was a pretty important constituency. Different rebel factions 
understood different members of the Syrian public or different sectors of the Syrian public as mattering to a different degree. So there were, you know, particularly in the civilian opposition, actually, not the rebels, but the, the civilian groups who led the uprising. Early on, you know, you hear a lot of language about this is not a sectarian fight. This is important. For, you know, this is a movement for all Syrians. We want to be very inclusive of religious minority groups of different communities. We're not, um, this is not a, you know, Sunnis versus Alawites mm-hmm. uh, argument. Um, there are other factions in the opposition, especially later on when the war really um, gets going in the opposition fragments for whom their audience is, you know, pretty explicitly Sunnis. Um, the Kurdish forces are a really interesting example of this because they sort of going through like the different, the different participants in the war in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, the Kurdish forces are really interesting example because they on the one hand kind of have this built-in constituency of uh the kurdish population of the northeastern syria but their leadership also realizes i think pretty astutely that that the territory that they're trying to hold uh is much of it is majority arab and so they make this very clear i don't know if it's like a conscious decision but they you know their rhetoric is very explicitly saying like this is not sectarian, this is or this is not um, ethno-nationalist. We're not excluding Arabs. Our political project applies to everybody. Now, their political project is not super appealing to everybody, right? People, you know, sometimes view their ideology with a fair bit of suspicion, but um, they at least are sort of trying to pitch themselves as being not actively harmful. Uh, to the interests of, uh, you know, Sunni communities in the areas that they're trying to hold, although that's not, Mm -hmm. that's convincing to varying degrees for different populations, right? Not ever, some people buy this, not everybody does. Um, And then for ISIS, I don't know, ISIS's audience is pretty hard to, it's pretty hard to sort out who they're trying to convince, uh, you know, because a lot of what they do is they're, they're clearly, interested in recruiting foreign fighters from abroad. Um, but they're also trying to do something different with their audience, uh, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily win people over, but just scare the bejesus out of them. Um, whether that's, you know, international, like the leaders of foreign states who they're you know, basically trying to threaten, um, whether that's members of minority religious communities. And like, if that's what they're trying to do, it worked. But uh, at a cost. Well, so, and ISIS is an interesting bridge to one of the uh, themes that runs through a lot of the book um, in terms of, it's not just like verbal narratives. You talk about this performative violence and, you know, kind of violence as a form of communication to these different audiences. And certainly ISIS yeah, so, is a lot of that. But so yeah, is that- ISIS is... So ISIS is in some ways a really extreme example of this, but this is something we see everybody doing. So, you know, we've got these big, broad narratives that, you know, sometimes like collide with each other and that influences the course of the war in some interesting ways. So one thing that we see happening is, um, you know, yeah, people are making military decisions for the same reasons that people always make military decisions. They're trying to control strategic bits of territory. They're trying to, you know, corner their adversaries or, you know, get rid of adversaries who are especially threatening to their interests. Sure, we see a lot of that. But what we also start to see is 
adversaries who pose an a, like a particular threat to a given narrative are sometimes based on people's military decision making it looks as if they're perceiving those adversaries as being especially threatening so one example of this is if we look at the patterns of who the regime is choosing to target which armed forces the regime is choosing to target over the course of the war while they frame the war as being this counterterrorist operation which would imply they should be especially worried about the groups that are you know using terrorist tactics like ISIS they actually direct the vast majority of their you know their military operations at the other rebel factions and they don't really tangle with ISIS until later in the war despite their rhetoric uh, of like this is who were you know we're primarily fighting and some of this may be because they calculated correctly that the rebels the kurds and the united states were eventually going to take care of isis for them but a a more cynical interpretation is that from a messaging perspective the existence of isis and this is you know a perspective shared by lots of people in the opposition uh, the existence of ISIS is like pretty convenient for the Syrian government, because if you are looking for evidence that the war is a fight against terrorism, ISIS provides as clear an example of that as anybody could wish for right now. That's a very cynical interpretation of uh, of the Assad government's motives, but it's certainly the interpretation that I think a lot of people in the opposition uh would adhere to. So that's one way in which, you know, in a very, very broad sense, the need for to um, promote certain narratives intersects with warfare. But at a micro level, and I think this is sort of the question you are asking, we also see violence used in very, very performative ways. And again, this isn't new, right? The definition of terrorism is violence carried out to, um, you know, in a spectacular or public way, to cause terror in pursuit of a political ends. So this isn't new, right? Uh, Leanne Fuji's Showtime, which is a, a just spectacular book, mm -hmm. examines the use of violence uh, as, as a performance in really, really convincing ways. And one of the examples that she uses is ISIS's videos of executions. But in Syria, one thing that we start to see happening, in addition to sort of Tradition, traditional, there's big air quotes around traditional, uh, uses of violence as a kind of messaging, like the bombardment of civilian neighborhoods in areas held by the opposition as a form of collective punishment to convey the message that like, listen, you support the rebels, this is what's going to happen to you, right? We see some of that, but we also see a version of performative violence that's really driven by social media, which... I think is new in Syria. Syria is probably the first conflict where we're seeing this, but the degree to which we were seeing it in Syria, I think is pretty is pretty unusual. Uh, and the platform where that gets used the most heavily in Syria is YouTube. Uh, there are different platforms that are associated with you know different conflicts, but in Syria, YouTube really is, especially early in the war, the platform which is used the most heavily by pretty much everyone. So early on, YouTube we see opposition. Archives and uh, kind of deleted like the memory of this makes it really hard for researchers if you yeah. didn't think to uh, save all those videos. Well, it's also, um, it's also a real problem for potential war crimes prosecutions. So there's this organization called the Syrian Archive, which is based in Germany, 
which is working to geocode and download as much of the footage as they possibly can to try and archive to both as a record of the war and eventually to use for war crimes prosecutions um, against perpetrators of violence against civilians. So uh, they are actually working with YouTube, let's say, to try and preserve as much of this footage as they can. Um, but it is it has been a real problem, actually, that YouTube like takes down some of these videos. And in fact, there were, you know, there were videos that I used and analyzed and, and created records of and did, yeah. you know, like took screenshots and then was glad I did because I went back and looked later and they've been taken down for violation of terms of service. No, I think we've, we, all of us who worked on Syria have experienced that at some point or another. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one of the things about these YouTube wars that you're describing is just how deeply contested even basic facts prove to be. You know, there'll be stories about a massacre carried out by rebels yeah. or, uh, you know, some atrocity carried out by the regime. And they take on the the, the, the character of truth. But in fact, there is a lot of kind of propaganda, a lot of difficulty actually ascertaining what really happened, or even if it matters that it really happened. So, you know, this is where I think the role of social media uh, becomes really interesting. And and by interesting, I mean, like, I think this is a very useful site for future research. So we start to see activists in the opposition uh, very early on trying to use YouTube to document um, regime reprisal attacks or just like regime attacks on civilian targets, right? So there's this whole uh, process that gets developed by these opposition or these like activist media centers where, um, you know, somebody like runs towards a bombing, holding their phone, trying to film like, you know, particular landmarks. They like yell out the date, they yell out like, like what the target is. Uh, there's a whole format for these videos. And the clear intent here is to, to tell a story, to document uh, particular features of the war. Uh, but, you know, as as you've said, right, that what are we documenting it for? What's the narrative that gets then gets constructed based on those videos? Um, that's really, that's a really important conversation to have. That's a really important aspect of, of understanding what's happened in Syria. But then what we see happening later in the war is the armed factions uh, start using YouTube as well, especially the rebels. Um, also, the, the Kurdish forces do this as well. Um, the regime, like the ministry, Syrian Ministry of Defense, had a YouTube channel for a while. I don't know if it's still up. It was it was a little iffy for a while there. Um, Not to mention Russia Today, which was like one yeah. of all the sites. Yeah, which is you know functionally, it's not exactly Syrian state media, but it's certainly promoting the the Syrian government's narrative of the war. So, particularly with these, you know, the the rebel run. YouTube channels. Um, and this like the Kurdish forces do this a little bit as well. Although once the SDF is formed and the US gets involved, they stop doing it quite as much. Um, but you start to see these videos being created that are recording um, people going into battle in real time to create these videos, which are then used for propaganda. So you've got videos of like, you know, somebody, you know, like firing, um, you know, a piece of artillery or like riding around on a technical. And then the guy with the camera will start interviewing them. Like, where are you? What are you fighting for? You know, tell us, tell us about the, you know, the cause which has mobilized you uh, to participate in the war, right? Like why, why should viewers care about what's happening in Syria? So there's some of that, but there's also these like sub genres of videos that uh, I think are, yeah, like they're meant for recruitment, 
because they're all meant for recruitment, but they do it in sort of an interesting way. Um, so there's these first person shooter videos, which I think are really interesting, which are usually shot using a GoPro or I don't know, some like off-brand mm -hmm. version of a GoPro. A lot of these are really heavily edited. They kind of look like video games. Some of the factions have um, like custom-made nasheed that will play in the background, praising their particular faction. Um, so um, Ahrar al-Sham has like a whole a whole selection of videos with like custom-made um, nasheed in the background. So a lot of this also, I think, is about branding and in that sense, it's also a form of storytelling, right? Like, what is the war about? Well, watch our videos and find out. The other place where I think these, or the other way in which I think some of these videos are really interesting is with regard to fundraising. So one of the things that, or one of the dynamics in the Syrian war, which I think is really interesting, is access to social media, the internet generally, kind of frees a lot of the rebel factions from the need to go through sponsor state governments in order to fundraise. So instead of having to appeal to the government of Saudi Arabia or Kuwait or Qatar, like any other state for support, which like some of them do, they can also use social media to go directly to very wealthy donors who will hold fundraisers for them and then send them cash directly, like well, like through an intermediary, usually one through Turkey or, or, you know, in some other way, to not through the Turkish government, but I mean, like geographically crossing the border from Turkey into northern Syria, um, to then provide them with funding without necessarily needing to go through the entire foreign policy apparatus of a sponsor state. Which, you know, if you're a rebel faction, this sounds really great. In practice what it does is bad, you know, it contributes to the fragmentation of the Syrian opposition because instead of everybody being responsible to like a central leadership, which is getting all the funding from the sponsor states, instead they're all running mm -hmm. after funding on their own um, and they're competing with each other for sponsorship money. So instead of there being like one centralized leadership of the opposition that's distributing funding where it's needed, instead you have all these different factions that are fighting with each other for support from the same donors. So like it doesn't, actually help the cohesion of the opposition very much. But it also creates all this real incentive to create um, flashy fundraising videos. So that kind of raises some interesting questions, right? So if, I don't know, I guess I, I would think of this stuff as falling into sort of three categories. So you've got um, uh, videos or like other social media content that's uh, a military operation that's going to happen anyway and somebody pulls out their phone and films it as it's happening so i would put um kind of like ad hoc videos of uh military operations like you know the syrian government's bombing something and somebody like takes a video of it and shares it on social media like i'd put that in that category then there are these videos where everybody knows somebody's going to film it but it was going to happen anyway so um some of isis's videos of executions like their videos of, of mass murder, um, like I think would probably fall into that bucket. The vast majority of the people murdered by ISIS are not foreign hostages, they are Syrians and Iraqis. And most of the videos of the murders of Syrians and Iraqis by ISIS are actually shot with like somebody's sort of crappy cell phone. Um, they're, you know, a lot of them are pretty fuzzy. Those are probably, you know, videos of violence that was going to happen anyway. And somebody like happens to have been filming it. And some of the footage of 
Um, and everybody knows it was being filmed, but like filming it wasn't really the express purpose. Um, and some of the videos of military operations, I think, also fall under that heading. But then there's this third category of military operations or violence against civilians or like some other kind of use of violence, which is carried out explicitly so that somebody can film it. Right. And figuring out where the borders are between those different categories is really hard. I'm not even sure that the perpetrators necessarily know it all the time, but there are some really clear examples. So um, some of ISIS's videos of executions, particularly of um, like high publicity hostages. So Moaz Kasespe, the Jordanian pilot who was murdered in this like particularly horrific way, he was um, he was immolated alive in a cage while being filmed um, or the uh, executions by beheading of um, like, you know, American and British and French journalists. Um, so analysis of some of those videos has shown that they were very heavily produced. I read one estimate that said there's this one like sort of super cut video of um, executions of multiple international hostages by ISIS. Um, I read one estimate that said that probably cost like several hundred thousand dollars to produce. Hmm. Um, they're very, they're very carefully staged. They are, um, there's a lot of like visual symbolism. There's really high production quality. So would those people have been executed anyway? Probably. Um, but the way that they were, those executions were carried out in a very specific way so that they could be, so that they could be filmed. So if we think about what this might mean for like mm -hmm. battlefield decisions, um, I don't know. I mean, like I talked to at least at least some of the Syrian civilians I talked to seem to think and like the plural of anecdote is not data. I cannot independently verify this, but it passes the sniff test. At least some of the civilian Syrian civilians I talked to were pretty suspicious that the rebel forces in their neighborhood were like talking to the regime forces on the other side of the checkpoint and deciding like, okay, we're going to have an exchange of fire tonight so that we can take a video. Um, and I talked to one person who said, yeah, like I, the, the regime checkpoint at the other, you know, at the end of my block told me, listen, you're going to hear fire tonight, but don't worry. We talked to the rebels. They're just firing in the air so that they can send a video to their, to their donors. Interesting. Um, and like, I, again, I can't verify this independently, but it, I don't have a hard time believing that that's going on. But, you know, if we think more generally about the bigger implications of this, I don't know. I mean, so somebody who's like an Instagram influencer who has like, or has like a, you know, a really popular TikTok account, if they're deciding, okay, where am I going to go have dinner tonight? Am I going to go to the place that has the really great wallpaper and the really nice furniture that's going to look great on film? Or am I going to go to the place with the really terrific fried chicken? Well, if they're filming, they're probably going to go to the place with a really fantastic wallpaper and if they're not, they're maybe more likely to go to the place with really great fried chicken. So if armed factions are looking at those trade-offs as well, and they are also trying to decide, well, am I going to like do the thing that's going to make for really compelling military, for like really compelling footage, or am I going to do the thing that's maybe, you know, going to work a little bit differently yeah. militarily? I don't know how this is influencing people's decision-making. Um, I only kind of touch on these questions in the book. But uh, I do think this is going to be really important for warfare going forward. We're certainly seeing this in Ukraine, for instance. Um, at least we are seeing the use of social media in Ukraine. I have no idea to what extent this is influencing anybody's decision making. But um, 
it strikes me that these are questions that people who study asymmetric warfare should should maybe be digging into a little bit, not least because it clearly has a serious impact on how civilians are affected by warfare. Um, it certainly has in Syria. And so this is, you know, I started our conversation by saying I started thinking I was going to write a book about one thing. And then I kept hearing all this stuff in conversations that really surprised me. And this was the thing that I I found uh, really interesting and had not really expected to hear uh, in some of my conversations. And that's... Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the the well, takeaways that I that I that's found that's interesting. a good transition to kind of the kind of the last question I wanted to ask, which is that mostly what we've been talking about is you know kind of on the the sender side, the strategic narratives and what the groups were trying to achieve, but you also have at least some evidence about what kind of ordinary people were taking from this and how they were receiving those narratives, and maybe we could you know for this last couple of minutes, maybe we could talk a little bit about you know kind of on, among Syrians themselves and you know how convinced were they by these narratives and you know and and what especially when there's a gap yeah so lived experience yeah that's a great question so you know again um i don't want to uh over overstate the conclusions that i can draw here because um you know almost almost by necessity. Um, I don't have like a perfectly representative sample here of Syrian public opinion. That's really hard research to do. Um, although there are people who I, you know, who I know are trying to do this and I, I really admire them for it. Um, but, you know, one of the clear themes that came out both in interviews and I also, so the data in the book is, uh, it's a lot of interviews, but it's also because I knew there are people who weren't going to be comfortable with a face-to-face conversation. I also just like dumped my most common interview questions into a fully anonymized um, Qualtrics survey and sent the link out into the world through the <laughs> through the people I was interviewing, through some other people in my research network, just to see what would come back to me. Um, and I ended up with a whole bunch of responses which I, I don't know, I mean, there's no geographic data that's being collected. You know, if people want to tell me what they think of as their home in Syria, there's a question about that, but there's not a, where are you currently sitting right now? Um, but I think from their answers, that included a lot of people who were still in Syria and who expressed a lot of support um, for Bashar al-Assad and his government. So, you know, I feel like there's at least some balance in the responses. And across the board, there were a couple of really common themes. One was the sense from everybody that this had become a proxy war, um, which is ironic, right? Sort of like, you know, like the one area of consensus is the narrative that uh, doesn't make any of the people fighting look particularly good. Everybody accuses uh, everybody else who's fighting of being a foreign stooge. And that's like the one thing that the Syrian public seems to be pretty convinced by, which is that their war has become. Uh, somebody described it to me as as uh, uh, other people's war on Syrian land. Yeah. I think that's how they put it, or a world war in one country that, you know, this had become about something much bigger than Syria. So, you know, that's one <laughs> that I think people seem pretty convinced by. Supporters of the government, I think, really do buy this idea that the war is a fight against terrorism, um, that the that the Assad regime is fighting a counter-terrorist war against violent groups that are trying to destroy Syria and that are, you know, maybe doing so in the service of foreign forces. 
people in the opposition uh, I or who are supportive of the opposition, while I don't, you know, most of the folks that I talked to, because I did most of my interviews in 2018, 2019, at that point, I don't think most people looked at the op, you know the the existing opposition and said yeah these are these are guys who are fighting for democracy in Syria that that didn't seem to be the consensus at that point but people who had spoken to who were who had been activists within the opposition who you know helped organize protests in 2011 or 2012 they believed you know when i spoke to them um or they shared that their motives early on and they believed the motives of the other people they'd been working with the other activists had been that they were trying to change Syria for the better they did, they thought their country deserved better than it a better government than what it had that they were fighting for the dignity of the Syrian people that was I, the word I heard the word karama or dignity a lot um so you know to what extent are you know people broadly convinced by these narratives I don't know I think people sort of understand that the motivations for the war changed over time um because they because they clearly did uh one of my standard interview questions was, do you think, like, is there anybody who you who you think is fighting for, really fighting for the well-being of the Syrian people? Like, who you think really, uh, you know, represents uh, a good option, I guess, or who, you know, who you really admire or who you think is um, mm-hmm. is good for Syria? And with the exception of people who are really, like, diehard Assad supporters... Who would say, yeah, the Syrian government? Uh, pretty much everyone said no. Interesting. Um, that like none of the none of the armed forces at this point, you know, seem to have Syria's best interests at heart. Um, but you know, again, the people that I was speaking with were I didn't interview people who were like active combatants, as far as I knew. Um, so I think, you know, if I'd like went out and interviewed a bunch of guys who were fighting with like Ahrar al-Sham, they for sure would have said that they were, you know, yes, us, we, we represent the best future for Syria. Um, but that's not, that's not necessarily who I was interviewing. It's really interesting. So we've been speaking to Aura Zekali about her new book, Syria Divided. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's uh, Spotlight segment, we talked to Wendy Perlman of Northwestern University and uh, the brand new co-editor of the APSA Journal Perspectives on Politics. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So maybe we could start just by talking about perspectives. This is one of the top journals in political science. It's really exciting to have a Middle East person um, at the helm. Tell us about, you know, why did you take it and, uh, you know, how does it look so far? Yeah. Um, I mean, well, the short uh, answer of why my co-editor on our phone and I took on the job is that we were asked. Um, <laughs> but it it struck us both as a wonderful opportunity. I mean, at this point in our careers, it's important to do some sort of service. Um, and, and editing a journal is an important form of service. I mean, um, any of us who have published articles in journals have benefited from an editor who spearheaded the peer review process and you can give back by acting as a reviewer and you can also try to give back by by taking on that role as, as editor. So it was a, a an intellectually challenging and interesting way to think about how to shape the discipline of political science to be um, in a place where you can um, try to um, to give feedback and shape and give space to to uh, to new articles, especially for early career scholars who want to get their foot in the door and publishing in a high high profile venue. Um, 
but it's also personally really, really interesting. I mean, I have read more and read more widely in the past uh, three and a half months as co-editor than I have in many, many years. So the exposure to different methods, different questions, different topics has been really helpful for me personally in, um, in thinking new, thinking through new ways and getting to know what's out there and getting to know who is out there. Um, Perspectives is a really exciting journal. It has always traditionally been a place that gives um, space to a, a wide range of epistemologies, interpretivists, positivists, quantitative, qualitative, um, to ask creative, outside the box thinking, you know, questions. Um, it's also a place that prizes um, big questions that speak across political science subfields. It's a place that emphasizes accessible writing to get away from jargon or terminology or other types of technicalities that can create barriers and instead tries to uh, crossover bridges and open spaces um, to ask big questions that matter for politics. It was a former editor, um, Jeff Isaac, who coined the term of uh, political science public sphere. So we think of perspectives as being um, a place where political science can perhaps engage a public sphere by, by um, speaking in a way that's more accessible to non-political science audiences, but also sort of a, a political science or public sphere for political science where people of from different points of views and different subfields can meet and speak to each other and perhaps foster new synergies and new conversations than, um, than more specialized subfield uh, journals do. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's an honor and a, and a pleasure and, and we've learned so much already. Yeah, I've been, as you know, I've been on the editorial uh, committee for Perspectives for a long time, and I'm really proud of it because I think it really is the, an amazing journal. And I think the one of the points you made is that it's one of the most methodologically open uh, journals in our, in our field, which is a good thing because you get exposed to a lot of different ways of coming at kind of big, important questions. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I think, what that's what attracted me to the journal. And that's what um, has made me want to publish and publish in the journal in, in the past. I mean, I've done uh, often qualitative work, sometimes uh, work in a, in a bit more interpretivist direction, as as you know, focusing on things like narratives and, and the lived experience of politics. And I haven't always felt that other, other big poli-sci journals were accessible to the kind of work that I've done, but Perspectives has one that um, is is one that uh, has always resonated uh, with my own work, so it's it's exciting to um, to see it from the other other side of things. Well, it's super exciting to have you uh, have you co-editing uh, the journal, and uh, my my condolences. Um, <laughs> but but I think it's it's really great. I think for uh, scholars within our field, of Middle East political science, that uh, to have someone there who is familiar with our with our literatures and our methods and debates, and hopefully this will be. Uh, continue to be a really good platform and venue for uh, younger political scientists working on the Middle East. Absolutely. I encourage, encourage you all to, to submit your works and from all subfields. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. for example, I read more political theory than I have um, in, in years. And, and it's just it's just great to, to learn um, from such a wide range. But for sure, submit to the journal. Well, so you mentioned like your own work uh, being in kind of the interpreter's vein and narratives and, and that sort of thing. And maybe we could talk about your work uh, for a while now, because, you know, one of the things which is so interesting about your career is that you've actually 
been able to publish in multiple different voices, so to speak. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes doing, you know, your, the oral histories, sometimes doing kind of like what people would consider like rigorous, uh, you know, analytical work and all of this. And so being able to walk across those different types of, of methods is, is not common within our field. And uh, maybe just reflect a little bit on that and, you know, kind of how you've approached, um, you know, being a political scientist. Oh, thank you for that opportunity to reflect. Um, I mean, I think I was is, was trained in a conventional political science way, although my work has always been qualitative, um, trained in the sense of that, that the, the the aim was was causal inference. The aim was to create to to generate and test mm -hmm. causal hypotheses that explain the political world um, and all that entails in terms of identifying variables and mechanisms, um, uh, engaging with alternative explanations and thinking about empirical indicators and collecting and analyzing data with this sort of a framework. So um, I've enjoyed that intellectual exercise. I, I, you know, I buy into it as being valuable that we want to not simply describe the political world, but but ultimately answer why questions about why things are the way they are. So um, that was my own graduate training, um, my dissertation on Palestinian politics mm -hmm. as a case with which to explain the social movements use of violent or nonviolent strategies, which became um, which became a book and a series of articles also on on social movements and political violence. Um, but I've always, you know, been interested in the lived experience of politics. And that's how I got into it. I, mm -hmm. I was not someone who began this path because I was really excited about hypothesis testing. I began this test, uh, this, this task because I, I was lucky enough to go to the Middle East um, to study abroad uh, during college. Um, I'd never been outside the United States and I went to, to Morocco for a semester and it was an absolutely life-changing transformative event not least because it was my first contact with um, life in an authoritarian regime in which I could see in the daily lives of the family I lived with, the people around me, how being in a system that was fundamentally unfree, that where it was lacked a sense of accountability, of opportunity, of, of, um, of free, uh, a freedom and 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 uh, the ability to choose your own rulers and the, the the ability to have a fair chance in the rule of law. I could just see how that affected everyday life in a way that that created um, ceilings, created barriers, um, stunted people's uh, aspirations and life chances, and that um, gripped me and captivated me to try to understand both how systems come to be like that, but also what it means for ordinary people who live under them. And I think that has been a theme of my work um, mm -hmm. for almost you know 30 years that I've come to it in different ways. It's part of that sense of how people grapple and search for freedom and dignity in, in, in unfair and unfree circumstances is what drew me to the Palestinian case that I then researched for a good 10 years. And then, of course, it's, it's part of what captivated my heart and mind when the 2011 uprises began, as it did for so many in our field, to see would this was this the chance that people would break through and, and get the kinds of systems that they wanted and deserved. So that drew me then to study Syria as a new country for which I'd had with it, which I'd had very little contact, but um, but was absolutely fascinating to the degree that people were able to, as we say, break the barrier of fear and go out and protest and struggle for that sort of system. And I've thus been, you know, studying Syria for the past 
11 years or so. So, um, so it was an, it was my own experience in the region that, that, that grabbed me to this ordinary, ordinary people in the lived experience of politics. And although I've along the way tried to, you know, write conventional journal articles and write conventional uh, political science books, um, I, I try to never lose sight of what politics means for real people, which has then also led me to some works that try to put the hypothesis testing aside and just really focus in on that, that lived experience uh, much more directly. Yeah, and and uh, and you published some really great articles on you know the the role of emotions in protest mobilization and protest uh, kind of diffusion and demonstration. We can go back and talk about those in, in in a little bit, but I think that probably what people are most uh, familiar with you know with your work on Syria is your remarkable oral history collection um, about the early days of the Syrian uprising. Tell us a little bit about this and um, how you came to write it and you know kind of the reception of. It because I think that this was really a departure for a convent, you know, someone who up till then was largely a conventional political scientist. Yeah, thanks so much. So, I mean, I began this project in a much more conventional way. The, you know, like many who are studying the uh, following the, the Arab Spring, um, and like, like many who study protest movements and social movements in general, there is always the question of how people solve problems of collective action to go out and protest, and especially mm -hmm. in highly repressive settings, how people um, uh, go out and why they assume the, the risks to participate in high risk descent. This is a classic question of social movements, the social movement studies. How do people and why? Do, what makes people participate in high risk descent? So I began um, uh, my research on Syria with that question. And in fact, I can thank POMEPS because I was a TRE grant. Oh, back excellent. That was part of what... Um, you know, part of the funding that allowed me to do my first summer of field research in Jordan. And I'm glad you don't remember this, Mark, because my proposal for that TRE grant was absolutely conventional political science. Here is my series of hypotheses about what explains participation in high-risk descent. And I'm going to go interview Syrians who participated in protests to be able to adjudicate between these hypotheses of what explains protest participation. I decided to go to Jordan and interview Syrians uh, at that point, the sort of early wave of Syrian refugees, simply because it was too dangerous mm -hmm. to go inside Syria to do interviews. But I wanted to gather firsthand experiences of people who protested. So I went to Jordan and I went there with my whole list of hypotheses, POMEPs approved and started doing interviews to ask people about why and how they came to participate in the protest. And very quickly, I just I came to appreciate the richness of people's stories simply about what the Syrian mm -hmm. revolution meant to them and also what the Syrian experience of authoritarianism was all about. And um, I would always begin interviews with one question. I became obsessed with this expression, breaking the barrier of fear. And I would say to people, there is this expression that people broke through the barrier of fear. Um, did that happen in your own life? And if so, can you explain to me how it happened? And that was really uh, another way of saying, uh, did you go and protest and what right. was it like for you and explain how it came to happen? But yeah, this was just open the floodgates of storytelling about, about authoritarian, what it means to, to live under authoritarianism and what it means to challenge it. Um, 
So, of course, I, I gathered all these interviews. I came my, and started to assess them. And I did end up writing, as you said, some, some more conventional political science pieces that try to use that qualitative narrative data um, to explain how, how people come to protest and how protest is organized, comes off the ground. But in the end, oh, that's good. Though. So so you, you don't have to return the grant. Uh, I was going to tell you, you have to return the money, but you did publish the article. So there's a, there's a couple of there's a couple of, you know, of, of, of journal articles that came out of there. But at the same time, it seemed um, like such almost a contortion of the, the richness of this yeah. data to put it into that rigid format. Well, I appreciate the format and it is it serves a purpose. Mm -hmm. There was so much more that I gathered that would be lost if I limited myself to the format of a typical political science academic journal article. And I realized that the best way to present this material in all of its depth and complexity and its emotional power was to try to present it much more directly, um, to let people engage with the stories and with the voices themselves as I was lucky enough to be able to record them. So I ended up writing a book that is, much, as you said, much more in a kind of oral history direction. It's a collection of narratives or a kind of curation of excerpts from the interviews that I collected. Right. Of course, that still leaves a big role for me. You know, I did the interviews, I transcribed them and translated them or oversaw the transcription and translation and um, cut out small portions. I mean, ultimately, I had tens of thousands of pages probably of, of transcripts. Um, a, single, a single interview could sometimes be um, 20,000 words and maybe I selected 60 words from that person mm -hmm. to put side by side other people's words in order to... Um, maximize sort of the diversity of voices, but also stitch them together in a way that was intelligible and told a story that could kind of walk readers through the story of the Syrian conflict via Syrian voices. So there is a big role for, for me as the editor or curator or author of this work, but as much as possible, I wanted to, to present the voices um, in a more raw form for people to, as much as possible, have the kind of experience like, as if they were sitting down with some of these folks directly as I did and, and hear from, from them. It was simply the, what I came to appreciate as the best, the form that the material demanded and deserved. And it's interesting to think about choosing a format, a style, a structure, um, even a target audience that, that the material that best serves the material to listen to the data you collect, listen to what you've gathered and think what best represents, serves and showcases this. Um, perhaps a, a conventional political art, science article is the best way to extract value and meaning and impact from a collection of data. And, and perhaps other formats are necessary and um, it's, been fun to, be able to listen to kind of listen to that and almost let the material speak through you. In some well, it, it's interesting because I mean I've heard anecdotally, as I, I know you have as well, that it's a it's a book that's been used um, quite frequently, like in classrooms. It's like a great like teaching tool where people can you know, students read it and then they can do the kind of work that you're describing, engaging with the firsthand material, um, which is a which is an interesting way to think about what a book could be. Yeah, and it's one reason I ended up with this format is I, I realized that in the interviews that I was doing, 
the Syrians with whom I was speaking were, were analyzing their own experience. They were making sense of the experience. They were explaining. They were doing. They were doing theory building or 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 or, or causal work and didn't need me to impose a hypothesis structure on them. People were saying, "This is why we went out and protested. This is how the regime has survived. This is why the the uprising took." militarized. This is why people left. They were almost asking and answering the kinds of questions we ask as political scientists, but doing them in their own, making sense of their own experiences and others and, and explaining and, and, and conversing and talking about this thing they'd experienced. So um, that reminds me of Lisa Anderson's great article in Perspectives about her experiences in the Egyptian revolution where that, that remember that she talks about how she lived in a country full of political scientists, every taxi driver, yes. every student, they're all like talking about electoral systems and the causes of mobilization. It's fascinating. Totally, totally. So that gave me confidence of, of I think of the book as a, as a tool to have in classes that there are personal stories that are very powerful and very emotional on purely the human level. But I think there's an awful lot of analytical work that it's going on. To, it's, it's, I aimed it as a book that would not only describe sort of the Syrian conflict and give expression to the human experience of having lived it, but also really can explain a lot of what happened and why it happened um, by just, you know, creating a, a little bit of space to um, allow Syrians to explain it for themselves. And it didn't take me then to interpret um, or to mm -hmm. uh, draw out and say, hey, guys, this is the takeaway. There's a lot of explanatory work going on, which I think is also um, quite makes it makes it useful for classroom purposes. You see that you see that a lot in political science and, and people writing about this, where you'll see, you know, maybe a quote that says, and then we overcame the barrier of fear and we went out into the streets. And then the author will say, this is an example of them breaking the barrier of fear and running out into the streets. It's like, yeah, they just said that. Yeah. yeah Let them yeah, speak yeah, for themselves. But right. at any rate, um, so we've been talking about um, we crossed a bridge and it trembled. Um, but I understand that you're actually working on something of a sequel um, to that book. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about, you know, where you went and what, you know, how you're like engaging with the material now in this in this forthcoming book. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thrilled to talk about this. It's still very new. It is um, the, the tentative title is The Home I Work to Make. Voices from the New Syrian Diaspora. Um, it's it's now in production with Live Right Books and should be out, knock on wood, in June 2024. Um, and yeah, so this um, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled came out in 2017. And uh, as it moved into production, I simply did not know what to do with myself besides continue to interview displaced Syrians. I've been doing it since 2012. Um, I, I, I was hooked and couldn't stop, but also felt that the, the Syrian story was not over yet. There was still so much dynamism and so much that was in flux and so much that was happening. And, um, and there were still so many stories to collect. So I just kept collecting them and collecting them. And whereas my, in my first early rounds of interviews, I began, as I said, with this question, basically of how did you come out, how did you go out to protest? Um, over the years, my interviews became even much more open-ended. And I was essentially asked people, tell me about yourself. Hmm. I always say I have two questions. One is, is man record? And the other is, tell me about yourself. And just let and people talk. And I follow the train of the narration and, and goes in, in any direction. But again and again, I found that 
people's stories came back to themes of belonging and sort of making sense. In the early rounds of interviews, people, there were so many events to discuss. People were talking about all of these things that happened and they experienced and this and this and this and this. And there was a lot of news and a lot of processes and a lot of, uh, a lot of events to cover. And then slowly with time, the interviews became much more introspective. There wasn't that much to recount anymore as much as to make sense of what did all this mean? What did it mean to have experienced a conflict and violence that was so horrific to be forced to leave your home, to know that your, your home or your hometown might not exist anymore? The entire world you once knew perhaps had been shattered. And now these folks who are all displaced peoples now found themselves all over the world trying to reconcile with the past on the one hand, this, which is itself is, uh, you know, almost larger than life task to make sense of and reconcile with what happened in Syria. And at the same time, move on to learn a new language, find new skills, perhaps find a new career, figure out new family dynamics, navigate new streets and create a new life somewhere else. And, and either one of these human challenges would seem to be immense. And Syrian refugees I was encountering were dealing with both at the same time. Um, so the interviews were, were navigating all of these processes. And as I said, the word belonging kept coming up as almost a way of people kind of figuring out who am I now? What gives me a sense of, of comfort and hope and, and meaning in the world? And um, the word, I played a, a, along with that word belonging and it slowly directed me to the word home. And, um, and, I, and I came to adopt home as kind of a new, almost kind of a new conceptual lens on these, mm -hmm. on these so this so the this new book is all focusing on Syrian stories of losing home, searching for home, finding home, not finding home, um, rethinking what home means. And here home is much more than a place. It's not a question of is home Syria or is home somewhere else? Home can be a sense of comfort, it can be love, it can be, be attachment, it can be a sense of possibility. It's what all the different ways in which people are sort of able to, um, uh, yeah, reconcile with the past and move on and make meaning of what they've experienced. So whereas We Crossed a Bridge really tries to tell the story of the Syrian uprising, how it began, how it escalated, how it evolved, this next book is about uh, what it means to live in the shadow of, of such a conflict and move on um, and, and home is uh, home and the search for home is uh, just sort of a focal point to allow uh, uh, allow different people to, to kind of uh, meditate on that theme. And it's fascinating here because in a sense, you're again allowing the people you talk to to set the research agenda because this is where they are now. And you might, as a political scientist, still be interested in the causes of the war, but that's not where they are at the time you're talking to them. Yeah, no, ab absolutely, ab absolutely. And it was, it was for me an experience of just, you know, listening actively and listening closely mm -hmm. to try to um, learn what was important to the people I was talking about. Um, 
And, and then once I began to really hear these themes and know that this was emerging almost organically and sort of endogenously that people were ra ra you know, raising up this theme because it, it was important to them, then I began more actively to think about it, to read about it and to ask about it. And it was always very comforting to me when I did ask about it that you could kind of see in your interviewees, in your interlocutors of, oh yeah, that's a theme that resonates. When I would ask about home and I could see people say, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, yeah. or uh, you know, my, my friends and I talk about that. And that's what kind of gives you an assurance of, okay, I think I've been able to, you know, put my finger onto something that, that, um, that that's important to the people that I'm, mm -hmm. that I'm, that I'm talking to. Um, and, and my job is to, is to give them a space to talk, to record it. And then to, to uh, again, to kind of, help translate the spoken word to the written word to bring these different voices mm -hmm. together um, in a form that a reader can engage with as if it were having a series of conversations with these people themselves directly. And maybe one last question um, is that because this intersects with a lot of uh, discussions that we've had over the years is that what you're doing here, it seems to me is not simply an analytical intervention um, but also an ethical one in terms of centering these voices and letting them speak for themselves, which is, you know, something which is not always central to political science, but maybe should be. Yeah, I mean, I I hope so. It's, you know, yeah, ethics and, and the ethics of both about, about um, how we as social scientists do what we do, but also why we do what mm -hmm. we do and for whom we do what we do, I think are big questions. I don't think there's a single answer to those questions, but I think it's healthy for all of us to, to ask them mm -hmm. um, of ourselves. Um, and, and it can be easy to go on autopilot and produce one work after another without asking the big questions of, of why and for whom and what do I want to achieve with this? What can I achieve with this? What do I owe uh, the people from whom I've, I've gathered data or my interlocutors, however you want to you want to word it. Um, but you know, early on, as I said, I was sort of captivated by the, the struggle for freedom and dignity in authoritarian regimes in general, and the Syrian struggle for freedom and dignity um, in particular. And uh, since that began, I feel like the one of the motivating, uh, you know, purposes of my work on Syria has been to try to to, to act in solidarity with those who went out and called for for better for better lives and the, and what I can bring to this um, is is you know I'm, I'm an academic and and I write I don't know, I want to know what I can offer but I have the the privilege and the resources and the time to to talk to people to record it and to write it up in books and um, I hope those books help explain um, and help educate. Um, um, but also uh, help document and and be another way of of kind of honoring this this mm -hmm. this struggle and and explaining it and um, and also almost defending it against malignment against um, against you know uh, unfair attacks or also against um, uh, the 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 risk that things are forgotten. Yeah. what people what people went through what they achieved what they endured um and the fact that this is sort of a, a bridge between looking at the syrian conflict and also refugees of course there's anti-refugee sentiment there's all sorts of um 
of, of, of unfair rhetoric about, about, about refugees, that they come places to just live off social benefits and take advantage and, 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 or, or want to subvert national cultures. So there's also, uh, um, you know, just the whole rhetoric of refugees should go home is also kind of a, something that this, that the book I've written tries to, to press against. What does it even mean? What is home anyway? Um, and, uh, so allowing um, a sort of displaced people to talk about the complexity of their experiences um, and, and kind of honor everything it takes to have been forced to leave under such circumstances and rebuild and not only rebuild one's life in, in senses that can be measured of going back to school or getting a job or becoming a taxpayer, but simply coming to feel okay again after in some ways the, your life has been like a carpet ripped up from under your feet to, to find grounding and find meaning, to find a sense of, of rootedness is itself, I think, such, such an achievement um, that it deserves recognition and deserves appreciation. And, and that's another thing I, I, I hope that, that readers might be able to appreciate from, from this book and from listening and this as an invitation to listen more. No, that, that's great. I'm looking forward to reading this book. And uh, we've been speaking with uh, Wendy Perman, Northwestern University. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. I'm Mark Lynch. This has been the Middle East Political Science Podcast. Thanks to Aura Zekeli and to Wendy Perlman for joining the podcast. And I look forward to seeing you all again next week. Da, da, da.